0: I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 29, and while you're turning there, I want you to think about that question that I introduced at the beginning of the service. If I only had, what is it that you would put in that blank, then my life would be right. At Christmas time, right, we said this for sure when we were kids, we said this if I only had what was that special gift that you wanted, right, then my life would be right. There's a whole movie at this time of year, uh, TBS devotes 24 hours straight to it, right, that centers around this question. Ralphie says, if I only had what? The Red Ryder BB gun, then my life would be right, right? And in the end, he shoots his eye out. And maybe that's a foreshadowing of where we're going in this sermon, because we don't stop saying this as adults, do we? If I only had this one thing, God, give me this one thing, and then then I'll be all right. Then I'll be okay. And that problem is the problem for the people in our text today. And they seem to be saying repeatedly, God, if I only had this one thing, then my life would be right. And so we're going to look at Jacob's one thing and Leah's one thing and then the only thing that can be what nothing else can. First, Jacob's one thing. We have to pick it up before chapter 29. The story of Jacob is probably familiar to you. Jacob is the younger of twins born to Isaac and Rebecca. And Isaac, remember, is the one we talked about last week. He's the son of promise that came to Sarah. And Isaac and Rebecca have twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the Older Jacob is the younger. And even though he's the younger son, Jacob is chosen by God to be the bearer of the promise. However, Esau is always the favored son of Isaac. When they were born, a prophet told Rebekah, their mother, that God would favor Jacob even though he was younger. But we get the picture rather quickly that Isaac never bought into that. In his mind, the son of promise, the one who would carry the promise to the next generation was Esau. And on top of that, he loved Esau. Esau was his kind of guy. He was a rugged hunter type. He was an outdoorsman. He was a man's man. Think duck dynasty with a big beard. He was the promised son. Surely this is he was the one child. And Jacob, the text says, is just the lesser son. I mean, he's the one that stays around the tents. He doesn't need to shave at all. He is exactly the opposite of Esau. He's probably reading his mother's recipes, and he has subscription to Better Homes and Gardens. Okay, that's just who he was. And because of this, he had an obvious lack in his father's eyes. And there's a constant reminder, m- re- reminder in his life that he is not the preferred son. And Jacob will spend his entire life trying to chase this one thing. And he's constantly after At one point, it's his brother's birthright. He conned his brother out of his birthright. At another point, it's his father's blessing. His father never really has loved him. And he thinks to himself, if only my father would look at me in the eyes just once and say that he was proud of me, say that he loved me like he does Esau, then my life could get on track. And how emotionally starved Jacob is that even under pretense, posing as his brother with goat skins on his hands and neck and wearing his brother Esau's clothes so that he smelled like him, he goes into his blind father's tents and he knew the blessing wasn't meant for him. But he so desperately wanted to hear his father say the words of praise to him that he would take them however he could get them, even if they weren't meant for him. And after all of this, we see him running away from his family. His brother has vowed to kill him because he's stolen the blessing. He's penniless. He has this promise from God that he's the guy, but he has no family to be the head of so that that promise can be fulfilled. And then we come to Genesis chapter 29. And in Genesis 29, we find him still searching for that one thing in life that will finally fill his inner emptiness and redeem his failures, and he finds it in a person. It's Rachel. Rachel becomes the one who will make my life right. And the text says it this way. It describes Rachel as beautiful in form and appearance. And what that means is, the modern translation is, she was put together in all the right places. Nobody minded the selfies that Rachel took. That is in stark contrast to her sister Leah. Of her, the text, well, it's not so generous. It just says, her eyes were weak. She was the kind of girl who, if she was fixed up on a blind date, the blind date would have asked, what does she look like? And the reply that he would have been given would be something like this. Well, did I tell you she should? She can cook? That, that's kind of it. She's really good around the kitchen. And so Jacob is taken with Rachel. Rachel is his one new thing. If only I had Rachel, she's whatever guy is after. And if there were only a way to get her, then I would be somebody, I would be something. And I could shed the stigma that my father reinforced all those years that I am a second-rate man. And so Rachel becomes the prize. And we get a a hint of how smitten he is with her when Laban says, hey, I like you. You're doing a good job. I want you to want to keep you around. Name what your wages should be. And he he seizes his chance. He says, I will work for seven years if you will give me Rachel as a wife. And. You need to understand that a normal dowry for what a, a husband would have paid a potential bride for a potential bride was about thirty or forty shekels. I, I get it. Th- th- this is a different day. We don't do it this way, right? We don't pay for people. Okay, it's a different day, different time. Th- that's just how the arrangements were made. So, thirty or forty shekels, but a year uh, worth of common labor is worth eighteen shekels, and so a couple years two and a half years worth of wages is what a normal person was paid. And what is Jacob offering? Seven, seven. Bottom line, he's not negotiating. He's making sure the deal gets done because she is the one who will make my life right. I've got to have her. He's out of his head with love and the idea that she's the answer to all his problems consumes him. And Laban agrees. Well, in a manner of speaking, he agrees. What he says is not yes, but he says this. Well, well it's better to give her to you than somebody else. That's my best Godfather voice. That's, that's it. That's what you get today. It's better to give her to you than somebody else. It's not a yes, but in Jacob's mind, he, it's all he needs to hear. And Jacob, Jacob's love and hope in Rachel to be the answer of his life is so great that, that he spends seven years working for her. And the text says they seemed like only a few days to him. So great was his love. And so the seven years are over, and the wedding comes, and Jacob is finally going to have his prize that he's worked so hard to get the one true love that will make his life okay. But Laban tricks Jacob. You've read the story, right? He doesn't give him Rachel. Under all the veils, under the wedding dress, Influenced by the party atmosphere of a wedding with feasting and drinking and his eyesight dimmed by the darkness of a tent. What he thinks is Rachel. Well, the text just says this. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Surprise. He's been tricked. Jacob runs to Laban. What what have you done to me? Why have you deceived me? Did I not serve you for seven years for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And Laban responds this way. It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Serve for another seven years and I will give you Rachel. There are some obvious questions. One that should float to the top of your mind right off is, how in the world did Laban expect to get away with this? I mean, Jacob is filled with fury. He goes and he says, why did you do this to me? And then Laban speaks. And then after that, Jacob doesn't put up much of a fight. He seems to accept the terms kind of in defeat. What's going on? And I need to help you with that because when Laban says it's not our custom to give the younger before the older, there's little doubt that that Laban, what he's doing is he's punching Jacob in the face with Jacob's own past. The blow probably uh, landed the minute Jacob heard himself use the word, Deceived. He said to Laban, Why have you deceived me? That word is exactly the same word that his father Isaac uses after Jacob steals the blessing from his brother Esau. Esau comes in from hunting and Isaac says, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And maybe Jacob puts it together the minute he says, In his own words, why have you deceived me? He realized that Laban is doing to him the very same thing that he did to his father. The meaning of what Laban says to drive the knife in even deeper is, I don't care how you operate back where you come from, but where we come from, around here. You don't give preference to the younger when it should go to the older. And he's pointing to the sin in Jacob's life. Ah! What an uppercut that must have been to Jacob, and he has no response. He's caught. He realizes how identical the incidents are. I reached out in the dark thinking it was somebody it wasn't, just like my father reached out in the dark touching somebody thinking it was my brother, but it wasn't. If I only had Rachel, my life would be fixed. Well, he works another seven years, and he does get Rachel, but his life isn't. It's never fixed. His life doesn't correct itself because of a new wife. She can't be the savior he wants her to be. No human can be that and never will be. And so we see in Jacob's life how he responds. He keeps chasing after better things. We can go on in Jacob's life and find that after Rachel, he moves his affections to her son, Joseph, his prized son. And Joseph is the one he fills in the blank. If I, As long as I have Joseph, I'll be all right. And then his brothers sell Joseph into slavery. And Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. And his affections change once more. Now it's Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. He's the only one I have left. He's the only child from Rachel that I have left. As long as I have him, my life will be right. And in the end, Jacob is still clinging to his one thing, hoping it will be the savior he needs it to be, making his life right, but it never does. That's Jacob. Jacob's one thing. What about Leah? Leah is the other one in this chapter we want to focus on. What's Leah's one thing? It's clear from the story in the text that Jacob never loved Leah. She wasn't the prom queen he wanted, just the girl he was stuck with. And verse 31 tells us straight out, It says, when God saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, and she began to have kids. And this story, once you read it, it has to give you a soft spot in your heart for Leah. I mean, imagine her life. Imagine the shoes that she walks in. From the beginning, she's in her beautiful younger sister's shadow. Everywhere they go, her sister is the one that gets noticed. Her sister is the one that gets the attention. Her sister is the one that gets the calls and the texts. Leah is non-existent. No matter. That's all right, she thinks. Because one day, one day my Prince Charming will ride up on his steed and he'll come along and he'll take me away from this place and he'll love me for who I am. We'll have a family and no longer will I be known as the cross-eyed ugly sister. I will stand on my own in the love of my husband and this one day will pass. And what a cruel turn of events for Leah that her prince finally does show up, but he only shows up because he was the one tricked into taking her. And on top of that, he doesn't love her. And on top of that, he loves somebody else. And on top of that, small detail here, the other one he loves is the very same sister that has drawn every eye they've ever encountered. And on top of that, her prince marries the one he's really been after all along, Rachel. And so now she is bound eternally To this arrangement, she will never be free from the shadow of her beautiful sister. She will always be the ugly sister. And is there a better word to describe Leah's spot than hated? When God saw she was hated. Well, Leah is no different than us or Jacob. And she has her one thing, too. The one thing she would put in that blank, what is it in this culture? We talked about this last week. We'll talk about it next week in this culture, your worth and value and purpose and meaning. If you're a woman come largely from being able to produce children for your husband, that's how you gain significance. And so God looks down and he gives her this gift, the gift of children. And at least she's capable in one area that will matter. She can have kids, and it will significantly raise her standing in her world. At least that's what she thinks. And so what's her one thing? Well, maybe you might think it's her kids, but, and in a way it is. But as we'll see, she uses them to get something else. Look in verse 32, she begins to have children and we can see very quickly what her one thing is because it's right in front of us in the way she names her children. The first one comes along in verse 32 and she names him Reuben and the name Reuben means see a son as in see Jacob, I've had a son for you now. Surely you'll love me. She even exclaims that hope in the text. Now my husband will love me. What happened? How'd that go? He didn't. Verse 33, she has a second son. She names him Simeon. It means heard as in, you know, God has heard me. He's given me children. Maybe, maybe because I've given my husband children, maybe he'll hear me too. Maybe he'll finally begin to listen to me, to notice me. How'd that go? He wasn't listening. He didn't notice Because she'll never be the prom queen he's after. Verse 34, she has a third son. She names him Levi. It means attached. As in, maybe now he'll want to be with me. How'd that go? It never happened. Leah's one thing is Jacob. Just like Jacob's one thing was Rachel, Leah's is Jacob. A relationship with her husband where they all live happily ever after, and she tries over and over to make it happen because it's the thing that will make my life right. Now, let's stop there and let's pull one lesson out of this. One of the lessons that we can pull is, it seems apocalyptic. It's chicken, little, the sky is falling kind of stuff. But So I need you to hang with me. Here it is. If you're going to write one thing today, write this. In this life, there will be cosmic disappointment in everything we put our hand to. Hang with me. Let me explain that. Through every event of life, every endeavor, every situation, there will always be this irritating background hum in this world that will bother you. And you will never lead a wise life until you understand that. Leah... Puts her hand to constructing a fairy tale marriage, but it never gets on track. Jacob works for years to get the one he's after, the one who will fix it all, but she doesn't. And that's a picture for us to grab a hold of. That picture of Jake, Jacob waking up with Leah in the morning, behold, it was Leah, that's a picture that you and I need. To remember, it tells us something. It tells us that every time you get that new job, every time you complete that project, every time you take that trip, every time you have a great reunion with family and you think, "Ah, I am happy, I'm satisfied, this is the thing. Listen, it will never be the thing completely or ultimately. One guy said this, no matter what you do in life, in the morning... It will always be Leah. You go to bed with Rachel, but in the morning it will always be Leah. C.S. Lewis said it this way, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel... No learning can really satisfy. He says, I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am, no, I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a great wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. The chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something... That thing we were after, the thing we thought was going to be in the center of it, the thing we thought would make our lives right, has evaded us. In everything you do, you will always go to bed with Rachel and wake up with Leah. And at some point, you have to wake up to that reality. And when you do, there's the question, how do I deal with that reality? And C.S. Lewis gives us some options. He says, first, you can can blame the things in your life. And if you blame the things, you're like Jacob, and you will just chase after bigger and better things. My marriage was bankrupt. It was because I didn't have a better him or her. And so I got to go get a better him or her. Number two, you can blame yourself. And if you blame yourself, you'll live in a constant state of self-hate. I'm not worth it. I'm not deserving Number three, you can blame life. And if you blame life, you will begin to build a shell around yourself so that life doesn't hurt you anymore. And you will stop hoping in things because, after all, nothing works out. Or four, you can blame the popular view of reality. And this is the one that requires some thought. It's the one that says... If there's never anything in this world that can be the Rachel that I'm really after, if everything is a disappointment, then maybe the Rachel that I'm really after is beyond this world. That's what Lewis is getting at. This wobble that we feel when the world is off kilter, even after the best days of our lives, that means something. It means that there's something in us that needs satisfied. And there is not one thing in this world that can accomplish it. Lewis says this, if there is a desire in me that nothing in this world can satisfy, then it means I must be made for another world. And so which response will it be? The first one, if you chase after better things, it makes you a fool. The second one, If you spend your time blaming yourself, you just end up hating yourself. The third one, blaming the world turns you into a cynic. But the fourth one, the fourth one, you're on your way to being a Christian if you go with that one. The fourth is the one that demand you look into something beyond this world to satisfy that hole in your life. And I'm going to propose that that thing. Is God, that thing is a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the solution that I've found to be true and most helpful when I encounter so many Leas in this world. I've decided that if I look to anything in this world to be what only Jesus can be, then I will be decimated. I will be crushed. That's what Jacob was doing. That's where Leah is. And so how do we deal with that? Our challenge. My challenge, your challenge, in order to practically navigate the minefield of all this disappointment that the broken world throws at us is this. We have to constantly make the one thing that can be what nothing else can be. I'll repeat that. We have to constantly make the one thing that can, comma, be what nothing else can be. In verse 31, we saw that Leah was hated, but also that God reached out to her. God opened up her womb. He, we could say that God loved her when she couldn't get love from the place that she was looking for it in her husband. And I need to say something obvious about that. God is the only true source of love you have. He is it. And that's what Leah had to learn. It took three kids for her to learn this. She had one, maybe he'll love me now. She had two, maybe he'll love me now. Three, surely he'll love me now. It never happened. One of the mistakes we make most in this life is trying to get somebody else to be in our lives what only God can be. It's a huge mistake. There's only one who can play the role of Savior, and that's Christ. Don't look to anything in this life. To be what only Jesus can be. That's what Leah has figured out in the end. She goes through this learning curve like we all do. She looks to her kids as saviors that they were never intended to be. And she does this so she could try to win the love of her husband. Looking to him to be the savior of her life. He was never intended to be that. And she learns it in verse 35. There's a change. There's a final son. A fourth son. A fourth child. And the tone is different. Something has changed in her. She says this time. This time, as in all those other times I was looking to the wrong thing this time, I will praise the Lord. And so the child is named Judah and Judah means praise, praise. She got it and we need to get it. That's what we need to get. We so often go around saying this, God, give me this one thing so that I can have the right life. And the right thing to say is God, the right life comes because I have the one thing. There's only one thing that can be the Savior, the love that we look for everywhere else. And that one thing, you know what it is. It's God himself. It's Jesus. It's his gospel. And it's pointed to that one child Jesus is pointed to in the name of the last son, Judah. It means praise. And this is where Leah gets her life back. She's no longer a slave to Laban, Jacob, or her kids because she's made them idols in her life. She looks to God instead of everything she's tried before to be the source of the true love in her life. And how does she do that? It's in the name. Praise. She praises. I want you to take your card out. What would you write on that card? You don't have to say it out loud. Let me give you some... Maybe examples of what some of you wrote in that card, if you were really honest. That thing that you want this Christmas, maybe you wrote that in your card. That job, maybe you wrote that in your card. I need a better one of those. Maybe it's that person, a person in your life. Maybe they're estranged from you and you want them back. Maybe they were taken from you and you wish desperately that they were back. For some of you, I know this is the case. You wrote in that blank, health. If I only had health, my life would be right. All of those things, perfectly valid to put there. Here's what I want you to do. In front of that word that you put in that blank, I want you to write these two words. Just squeeze it in somewhere. Praise for. Praise for. Because that's what Leah's doing. She's saying, this time I will have praise for the things that I was before looking to, to be saviors in my life. And I'm no longer going to do that. This time I'm going to have praise for the one who gave those things to me. And does that change the picture? I will have praise for that Christmas gift. I will have praise for that job. I will have praise for that person. I will have praise for the health that I have. And that changes things. It redirects us back to the fact that nothing in this world can satisfy. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue those things, that I shouldn't have that Christmas gift or that better job or that bigger house or or better health. It's just that those things can't ultimately deliver. We can't trust them for the long haul, but God can. We can trust God, and he is the giver of those things. And praying this kind of prayer puts him back in the right place as the only source of true love, the only source of worth, holiness, righteousness, and salvation. That's what Leah discovered through her last son, Judah. By the way, do you know who Judah is? You've probably guessed by now, right? He is the son of promise. Oh, when you read Genesis, you want it to be Joseph. I mean, Joseph, there's a long story at the end of, Joseph, uh, end of Genesis, and surely Joseph is the ancestor of Jesus. Surely Joseph is the promised son. He's not. It's Judah. Judah is the one who will become the father of Jesus and pass on that promise to the next generation. And God comes to Leah, the hated one, the one who will never get asked to dance and says, I want you. To be the mother of the son of promise, the one who will lead to the one child who will be the Messiah, ultimately the mother of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel we need to know that God, the only true source of love, is easily found, easily found when we quit looking for love in other places. His love is the only love worth finding. And so, this is your assignment this week. Uh, It's on the other side of your card. It goes like this. I won't look to anything else to be what only the one child Jesus can be. I won't look to anything else to be what only one child, who is Jesus, can be. And the way you do that this week, the way you live that out practically, is to pray Leah's prayer. What was her prayer? This time, I will praise the Lord. This time, I will praise the Lord. Oh, that car? Man, that's nice. That's a great car, but it's a terrible Savior. This time, I will praise the Lord. That trip, man, that was great fun. But I can't draw worth and value and significance from a trip. This time, I will praise the Lord. That person... They mean the world to me, but they can never save me from it. And so this time, I will praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to use that prayer. To put you back in the right place on top. There are so many great gifts in this world that you give us. And all too often, we run after those gifts As if they are the only thing that matters. As if they will give us what we're really after. Love and significance and worth and value. And they will always disappoint. Help us to be mindful of that. And in our chasing after them, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't. It just means that we should put you in the proper place. That we we should trust you instead of those things. Would you help us to get the order of love correct? It's in Jesus' name we pray.